It's our privilege now to, as one united people, go to God in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, behold, your tabernacle is among us, and you have dwelt among us, and we are your people. And we echo thanksgiving. We continue to echo thanksgiving that you are our God. Indeed, we are yours by your gracious choice. Though worries and fears threaten to rob our identity in you, though our own pride and selfish ambition distract us badly from all that is love, our election is from before the foundation of the world. Sins may bring us down, but our deeper and greater hope is in the claim on our lives that you purchased from before time. And so, Father, we are glad to live in submission to your gracious authority, to live simply, to live in love. This is the freedom you call us to. Grant with power that we would live out and tell others the gospel of life. We want our focus, O God, to be your focus. To do what is on your heart. To be one with your mind, your will, towards our community, to fellow believers and churches throughout, to non-believers, to our families. We want to be saturated in the mind of you, Christ, in your word, that we might know your will. Lord, you prioritize people. Even in our work that might not directly interact with others, our callings are for the good of others. Seek and save the lost. Seek and save those who are struggling through us. So to that end, we pray for the church universal. Continue to grow your church in the Nacogdoches area and in all the world. Make your shalom abound far as the curse is found. Increase our love and unity among us all, with all faithful churches in this area and in our own denomination, that we would be one, as you and the Son and Spirit are one. Protect the faithful from sin and error and from all those who would seek to harm us. Lord, for the persecuted and terribly harassed church and missionaries in deeply difficult places, be with them, stir their faith in the conquering Lamb, show them the glory of your Son and his worth, which is beyond everything and more valuable even than comfort. Give assurance that you are with them, even in their great trials, even though they are outnumbered. Give them vision. For civil governments, Direct by your sovereign power, even your enemies, to do your will. To accomplish, in spite of the rebellious policies, what advances your kingdom. For your people who lead in civil governments, your own, we pray that you would anoint them with your spirit of wisdom to do justice, love mercy, and to walk humbly, and in their policies as well. We pray against all forms of oppression now, robbery, murder, and greed, and all abuse of power. Defend victims of injustice, punish the wicked, and Lord, increase peace in all the earth. And for those family and friends who are experiencing trial of soul and pain of body, God, we we give you thanks for the successful operation of Ed, and we thank you for his faithful wife, Martha. Thank you that he's with us today. We thank you for all this answered prayer, for the comfort and grace Um, for the love that you have demonstrated 
to him in this, and I pray that there would continue to be healing, um, that there would be patience, that you would grant rest and peace of mind and heart to Ed and to Martha and to their family at this time. Lord, we think of our very people that we love. We think of the Pickards out sick with um, a lot of sickness running through them, and we pray that you would comfort them this day and be their hope and give them deep peace at this time. Father, we're reminded of so many of those we know uh, in the past few months, death of family members, death of dear friends, death of very young children. We are reminded, Lord, even in Sunday school this morning, that indeed you have come into the, to the very place of pain. We thank you for the glorious truth that Christmas brings to this reality. So, Lord, we lift up those you bring to our hearts and minds, family and friends, co-workers, those in pain, those in need, enduring the wounds of sins in the past or those who have lost family members, and the pain is still very real. At Christmas, we remember, indeed, that you are the God who truly came into our world and fulfilled ancient and long hoped for, waited for promises and prophecies. You keep your word. You conquered sin, misery, and death. You purchased us. And you will bring a final rest, a final completion one day. All will be made well. And so looking back to your advent and looking forward to the conclusion of the future advent, we hope and we know. So we are content because of Jesus. You did tabernacle among men. You dwell among us truly in your spirit. And now we are on mission with you in a very exciting and hopeful future. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand. Luke chapter 1. Luke 1, verses 46 through 55. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bondslave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who are humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel his servant in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Lord Jesus, bless this word. Pour out your spirit. Where hardness of heart is, where deceitfulness of sin, that is hardened hearts, where there is spiritual blockage. We pray that you would bust that apart by the power of your word and your gracious spirit, that your kindness and your glory and your beauty and your worth and your majesty would lead us to repentance and hope. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Who was Mary, the mother of Jesus? This is Mary's song. We just sung it. Mary's Magnificat is what we call it, which is Latin for magnifies. We know this passage as Mary's song, magnifying her Savior, her own Savior. Our primary text will be verses 46 through 48, but we'll be drawing from the the force of the whole passage. So as an introduction to the sermon, Jesus had a mom. I want us to slow down. Think about that this morning. Jesus had a normal human mother. He was born in the normal way babies are born, a bloody and, shall we say, very earthy event. Jesus nursed. In Philippians, Paul writes that Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a bond slave and being made in the likeness of men. He was co-equal with God and still is. He is very God of very God, we say every Sunday. Yet he became fully man with all the normal limitations that that entails. The author of Hebrews says Jesus learned, learned obedience. He had to study. He learned to read the Torah like other Hebrew boys. He had to learn the difference between his right hand and his left. Think about that. He didn't have a fully grown-up 30-year-old mind in a baby's body. By the power of the Spirit, Jesus' divine will worked with Jesus' human will in ways that are mysterious and profound. But we know that God allowed himself in Jesus to be limited with his powers and capabilities. It's a part of what Philippians 2 means. He needed to take on the full dimensions and painful realities of being a man in a fallen world. But remember, the Son of God had a mom and a dad that today is focused on Mary. She was a real woman with a name, Mary, or Maryam, meaning love or beloved, though I'll admit Mary has a very complex word origin and etymology. It's also very close in form to Mara or Marim, which means, and you might remember, bitterness. This is what Naomi, the book of Ruth, said regarding herself as she felt like a female Job, losing so much. The themes of the Magnificat represent the summation of the older covenant, waiting upon God to restore the kingdom to Israel, like Naomi's bitterness, Israel and Egyptian slavery, Babylonian exile. And, of course, the desperate condition that most Jews experienced under Herod the Great's tyrannical rule, as we have helpfully been covering in Sunday school the past two Sundays. 
in Mary and her song, the weight of all those stories, the weight of the long stories of highs and lows, triumphs and tragedies, are summed up and make this song what it is. Eastern Orthodox theologian Alexander Schmemann says this, Mary is the true daughter of the Old Testament. It's last and most beautiful flower. That is, she personifies the fulfillment of the promise. 39 books, all those years, they sort of come to a head in this beautiful woman, Mary. Verse 54, she says, He has given help to Israel, his servant, hearkening to her people, the story, in remembrance of his mercy. God has remembered. Christmas is a glorious time because God acted on the promise by sending his own son, his own son. And so we remember the full humanity of Jesus Christ. As the Apostle John says in his epistle, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. It's a great Christmas text in so many ways. Being completely human then, Jesus was raised in large part by his mother. Just imagine, imagine those tender, beautiful, unbelievable moments between Mary, just Mary, and Jesus. The things spoken about her son. She knew, and here she is. Imagine the the tenderness and the tremendous power in those encounters. Jesus was taught the Shema when he was a baby, tenderly and lovingly spoken over his little frame. Yeshua, Shema, Jesus, listen. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Vehavta et Adonai Eloheka, and so on. In her context, a real mom with a real human boy, the God-man, Jesus Christ. God, in his glorious wisdom, caused his only begotten son, the creator of the heavens and the earth, to become an embryo. One twenty-fifth of an inch long, God became a baby. A baby that required to have his diaper clothes changed and was completely dependent upon others. God did this. He humbled himself and he chose a poor woman to be Jesus' mother. And so Mary is very important. There is only one human being ever that can genuinely say, Jesus is my son. Think on that. Highly favored indeed. But though she would lose a reputation in the eyes of many, 
by her apparent illegitimate pregnancy, she would gain a much deeper identity. So, what has happened in this text? Gabriel has appeared to Mary, tells her that the Holy Spirit will bring about this miraculous conception of the Christ child within her. Gabriel tells her that in verse 33, he, Jesus, will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Of course, Mary is perplexed and wonders how in the world all this is going to be. Of course, we don't know how old she was when this happened. It's possible that she was as young as 14 or 15 years old. Young. Gabriel says that the power of the Most High would overshadow her. Nothing will be impossible with God. Verse 38. Total trust on display here in Mary. And to be compared with Zacharias' response to the angel. Total trust is on display in Mary. And Mary is honored and remembered for her faith. And because God chose her to display his glory, she was simply an obscure and poor young lady to display how God exalts the humble and rebukes the proud. And so, Mary's song is an explosion of triumphant thanksgiving for Israel's long story. So our main focus today is simply who Mary was and how the Magnificat sheds light on that. Let's pick up with verse 39 to get more of the context in this. Read with me. Now at this time, Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Now notice, it doesn't say blessed are you above women, something that a number of people have pointed out. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, verse 43, And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leapt in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who has believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. Let's continue. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Here's the problem. Mary would have a bad reputation for many the rest of her life. Mary knew that in a culture that held male-female relations with strict propriety, she would be branded as a na'op, an adulteress, the rest of her days. Others in her community would not believe the rather unbelievable story about the divine conception thing and Gabriel and you, someone non-royal and poor, as the bearer of the Messiah. And Nazareth? Really? Where is the great man? And where is the great father that the Messiah would come from, huh? Is not his father Joseph? They would scoff. And some such things that we see in the Gospels as well. Though her reputation would be marked negatively in the eyes of many the rest of her life, she had to submit 
to faith in God's plan, His way. She now had a calling and an identity that was far more important, come what may, than what her community thought of her. Second point, Mary was poor. Scholars and historians have identified the class of people that Mary most likely would have come from. They were called the Anawim. Very poor, but very pious. The pious poor. These people suffered because they were so poor, of course, but they did not give up their hope. That could not be taken away so easily. Notice the way she speaks, the words she chooses. Look at verse 48. For he has had regard for this humble state of his bond slave. In Greek for this verse, the best rendering for the way she describes herself is he looked upon the humiliation of this female slave. Based on Mary's language about herself and other clues like the sacrifice that she and Joseph offered later, which was birds instead of a lamb, They were most likely very poor. The Anawim, the pious poor, soaked their hopes in the promise that the temple symbolized. They poured over the message of the prophets and made their message their own identity to give them hope and identity because everything else is stripped away. Yearning for true justice, the end of corruption and oppression. Remember Elizabeth and Mary lived, of course, during Herod the Great. And if we've been listening, that should bring a force of their context to you. Herod is another pharaoh. Herod the Great, another pharaoh, another usurper that lived in Israel, a false messiah, right, Elder Hill? Aside from his construction of the temple, what was he really like? And all we have to do is keep reading. Remember what he did when Jesus was a young toddler, Herod slaughtering all the toddler boys of Bethlehem. And so times were low for the Jews of what is now known as the first century. Zealous Jews who rose up to defy the wickedness of Rome and bring about God's kingdom through their dedication to holiness, those kind of people were brutally crushed and killed. Mary's day was a deep, long-lasting hope for the Messiah to come. And as they waited, they wrote God's law on their hearts to keep them alive, to survive. Mary would have written the Psalter on her heart, too. And to be a faithful Jew meant to be a faithful singer. They sang the songs because so many of them were songs. And so those show up right here in this passage in verses 48 through 55. So let me just summarize the essential force of verses 49 through 55. Really, the linchpin of this passage is that the Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled in her son. And wonder of wonders, God has done a great thing for me, Mary exults with this amazing news as well. It's interesting if you note the repetition, the repetition of first person pronoun me and her use of my in verses 46 through 48. It brings this out. She's exulting in what God has done for me personally, of course, and what this meant for her, but also for her people. 
she speaks to both. Mary's so filled with joy and gratitude that she sings these words. She recites the songs she had engraved on her heart from experience and discipline. And she does so in verses 50 and 53. Hopefully you have a good cross-referencing system in your Bible so you can see exactly where she quoted from. There's a strong connection here with 1 Samuel 2. We should think of 1 Samuel 2 when we read this, which was, of course, Hannah's song. Hannah of the Old Testament, barren Hannah, whom God had given Samuel. And the themes of these songs would be some of the very chief themes of Jesus' ministry. There's a parallel between Hannah and Mary's songs and, of course, Jesus' ministry. Themes like what? Themes of the proud brought low, the poor in spirit vindicated, the rich and cruel going hungry, and the, the filling satisfaction of those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. But Mary's path of discipleship was difficult and required faith. Mary was told that even a sword will pierce her soul. There would be hard days ahead. She would agonize and mourn. And as Elder Hill brought out, yeah, it's true. Jesus, Joseph, and Mary were like these poor immigrants rushing out of countries like Syria and coming into countries like Greece. Immigrants. This was, this was Jesus' family. Immigrants. Homeless. But God would see them through Revelation 12 describes exactly how God preserved them, how God was with them in Egypt and took them to Egypt. It's a wonderful thing. But there would be hard days. And of course, the hardest day was the day of Good Friday. Can you imagine being Jesus' mother, watching your firstborn son be crucified? Hung naked, Mary had to watch. Easter would come, but she had to wait for it. Not knowing what you and I know, post-Easter. There would be times that she did not understand what Jesus was doing. He branches off on his own in the temple when he's 12, discussing (laughs) deep theology with the scholars. And he is rebuked by his parents for it. There are scenes in the life of Jesus in the Gospels where Mary is doing what moms do and what families did then, which was to prioritize family matters more than anything else. In Mark 3, they said to Jesus, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Wow. Imagine that. Jesus' true family are those filled with faith and obedience. The bond of baptism is deeper and more fundamental even than the powerful bonds of family. 
still a challenge today for where we place our core identity. And this moves, moves me to my next point. Much of Jesus' family did not believe. Here's what the Apostle John wrote about his brothers in chapter 7, verse 5. For not even his brothers were believing in him. Just a short, short statement, but one that is important to catch. But later, happily, we know that Mary was a disciple of her own son. That's important to catch. Mary was a disciple of her own son, her Savior. In Acts 1, Acts chapter 1, shortly after Jesus ascended to his father, it says this, These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers, which is encouraging. But mark it, Jesus was scorned, and his family was scorned because of him too. Jesus, in the eyes of some, was an illegitimate child, his mother an adulterer, and his father shameful for marrying one too. And this is a critical passage in this story, John chapter 8. Some Jews said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. Did you catch that? We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. This sermon is part one of a two-part series on Mary. Next time, Lord willing, I will address many of the views that Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy have on Mary. We need to understand them. But one impulse that goes deep with some on Mary, and I want to address it, is this. The idea that we need some kind of female representative in God or amongst the gods. That Mary is the necessary woman around here. The softer, more relatable side of God's condescension to us. This is a powerful impulse in many in our culture, and around the world. But we need to be careful, because much of this is just simply recycled old-school paganism, where it was essential for women to make up the pantheon. It's easy to see how feminism has picked up on this. Sadly, many women's experience with men, fathers, boyfriends, husbands, is terrible. And the ease with which that terrible experience can be projected back onto the fatherhood of God is understandable. And how Mary can be exalted in a place that is very unhealthy and very unbiblical. It's all related. And this resentment in culture definitely turns into a I am woman, hear me roar type of insecurity and identity confusion. 
and related, I could give extensive commentary on the rise of the women warrior and the popularity of the prima matriarch cult that is extremely in vogue right now in Hollywood. It's the latest rage. Go see Star Wars. Notice the previews and be prepared for lesbianism. Just another sad rendition of pain, of confusion on identity, on the fatherhood of God, on gender. In pop culture, it is now the age of woman in very unhealthy ways. It appeals to the flesh instincts of women, but it actually demeans women in the process. Meanwhile, the lazy, passive male sits back and is more than happy to let women take the responsibility. It's all messed up. In almost every sector, look for it. And I'm telling you, these feminist ideas are striking chords within young women everywhere, in churches, and stirring their hearts. I see it almost every day. Biblically understood submission is mocked and viewed as a bad word. But this provides us with a valuable opportunity as we think about Mary, as we think about this important movement in our culture. What is the most valued and glorious role of women in history, in society? How can Mary's story inform us on these things? One of the great needs of the hour is to avoid a sinful patriarchalism while rebuking the lies about women that much of culture espouses. This is a great time for Christians to refute the deceptive lies of feminism and exalt the true beauty of biblical femininity. This needs to be a bigger lesson for another time. But fathers and mothers... Gender and gender roles are front-line issues in today's culture. Go after it. People of God, I want to say, do not live under the shadow of a very broken father or mother live in Christ, as Mary did, as the church does. If you have been a deeply broken father yourself or mother, live in Christ. Give him your brokenness. Let's transition now and let's honor Mary. My last point, let's honor Mary. Jonathan Edwards, in his powerful sermon series on 1 Corinthians 13, comments on the Blessed Virgin Mary. He says this, Great was the privilege which God bestowed on the Blessed Virgin Mary in granting that of her should be born the Son of God, that a person who is infinitely more honorable than the angels, who is the Creator and King of heaven and earth and the great Savior of the world, should be conceived in her womb, born of her, nursed at her breast, was a far greater privilege than to be the mother of the child of the greatest earthly prince that ever existed. But yet, surely that was not so great a privilege. 
as it was to have the grace of God in the heart. To have Christ, as it were, born in the soul, as Christ himself does expressly teach us. End quote from his sermon, Charity and Its Fruits. God's choosing a young, poor, obscure woman to be the mother of our Lord is incredibly significant. Who else would God choose? And speaking of the role of women in the genealogy of Matthew, no less than four women are there who all, every one of them, had irregular marriage unions. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Scandalous stories. And we can sip away on our latte in the morning and read through Matthew chapter 1 in our devotions and completely miss the incredibly crazy story. Look back at the stories of these women. Genealogies did not include people like this, especially in this day. I mean, just for a moment here, just imagine you're really close to someone, you feel like this is the one. You take them over to uh, your parents' house to meet the parents. And you take down, go down the hallway and you see the picture of the family tree. And yeah, this, was, this is Billy Bob, and he slept with his daughter-in-law, and the daughter-in-law deceived him, and she was a prostitute. I, I mean, what? What did you just say? Get, tell, get back up. Like, tell that story again? I mean, that's just Tamar. And then David and murder and deceit. It's scandalous. What is the point of those women in that story? The point is that Matthew's saying Jesus is the friend of sinners. His gospel demonstrates that Jesus is the friend of the messy, of the broken, of sinners. And that any brokenness can be redeemed and transformed and made beautiful because of the redemption of Christ. It's very intentional. Matthew is very intentional to place them in the genealogy as though they're to be heralded and and honored. These crazy stories. It's intentional. There is a hope and a place for sinners. Shame and failure are transformed and redeemed in Christ. That's why they're there. That's what the Gospels are about. And that's what Christmas is about. God glorifies himself through what man considers insignificant. Martin Luther and John Calvin wrote that Mary, though godly, was human and in herself, apart from God's grace, was nothing. But she was blessed with fullness of grace, indeed, to bear and raise the Christ child. I just want to share one more fascinating passage in reference to Mary at the end of the Gospels. One time a dying father said to his young teenage son before he went into life-threatening surgery, what are you going to say to your son? It's not the last time you're going to talk. What are you going to say? This is, what this, this is what this father said. Son, There are three things. I love you. Believe the Bible. 
take care of your mother. That's what he said. And at the end, when Jesus hung there dying on the cross, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he was referring to John on the ground. Your vocation now, Mary, is as a mother to John, the apostle. Get this. She was to be a servant to the church. That's her new role. Your family is the church, Mary. They are your people. And then to John, Jesus said in some of his last words on the cross, Behold your mother. Mary and Jesus point us in one direction. Christ in his church. The head is always connected with the body. They are to be distinguished, but never separated. St. Cyprian said, and I've probably quoted this before, Martin Luther picked it up and used it as his own as well. No man has God for his father that does not have the church for his mother. That is, Christ meets us in his Holy Spirit. The Spirit meets us through the means of grace. By God's own design, he does this. The church, her preachers, her witnesses, her evangelists, her parents, you name it. Us, the people of God. The Spirit takes these things and forms Christ in our hearts. We find Christ in his church. Word, sacrament, people. So, take care of the church, the bride of Christ. Take care of each other. Defend her. Prize her supremely because she is the body of Christ. In conclusion, Mary, this beautiful woman of faith, says, I am blessed because of my Savior. She says, Christmas is not about me. It's not about you, the presence and experiences you want. It's about my son, Yeshua. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Mary. Thank you for her extraordinary life. What an amazing woman. What an amazing story. And yet, even more amazing is the fact, Father, that you became a man. You reduced yourself in humility to becoming a baby. And you grew and you obeyed the law. You fulfilled all that was necessary. You took our sins upon your body on the cross, including Mary's. And you have redeemed us. You have become the Savior that we rejoice and that we worship forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen.